0: was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets
1: so the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work i feel like we got top 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 i went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt 192 million dollars this is built to sell radio with your host john warlow Hey, before we get into today's episode, I want to take a second and describe a new project I've been working on for the last year or so. It's a book called The Art of Selling Your Business Winning Strategies and Secret Hacks for Exiting on Top. And it's coming out on J- January 12th, 2021. So, what I've done is distilled down some of the best practices, kind of hacks and ideas and strategies of all the episodes we've done here at Built to Sell Radio. There's more than almost more than 250 of them now and what I try to do is codify the best ideas into this book it's divided into three sections everything you need to do before you get started how do you drum up multiple offers for your company and then finally how do you punch above your weight class in a negotiation to sell to get a copy just go to built to sell.com slash selling here's the next episode so when you sell your company, when do you want to get paid? My guess is the day you hand them the keys, you're looking for a check in return, which is a legitimate desire, but unfortunately, not usually the end of the story. In fact, in most cases for small companies, when you sell, you're going to get some of your money up front and then some in the form of future payments, whether that's a future payment on a vendor take back or some sort of earnout scheme there's going to be some money in the future. And while I think everybody wants 100% of their money up front, many times there's got to be some transition. And my next guest is a guy named Mark Tim. And he has sold the same business twice as he will describe in this episode. He sold it bought it back and then sold it again and had the opportunity to go through the sale of the same business twice. And so from that, he learned lots. And one of the things he learned was the importance of what he describes as the difference between a good deal for you as the entrepreneur and a fair deal for both parties. Here to describe the difference and what you should strive for as an entrepreneur is Mark Tim. Mark, Tim, welcome to Built to Sell Radio.
0: Hey, I am so excited to be here, man. Just uh, looking forward to sharing and pulling back some curtains. Awesome. Well, let's get into it. I know you've had
1: seven exits, so it's hard to pick. It's like a Chinese menu, trying to pick out what what you're going to have. But we've decided to focus in on Cottage Garden because I think there's a really neat story there. Um, So let's get into it. What is Cottage Garden?
0: Yeah, so Cottage Garden is, uh, it's a company that was started right out of my garage. And, you know, it's one of those true entrepreneurial stories where I'm working for USA Today, have an idea for a business, you know, we started out of the garage, you know, literally having to apologize to the neighbors for the UPS truck pulling up. And then one day a semi pulls up to our house and you know, that was kind of the tipping point. At that point, we had to start passing product out to all of our neighbors, you know, or or we were in trouble. But we finally did graduate to a real warehouse. And uh, next thing you know, it, you know, we we doubled business every single year for five years. And but hold on,
1: but to explain to people before we get too far in the story, what does Cottage Garden sell?
0: Well, and so that, that's actually where I was going. And, and I, I like to tell the preface of kind of what we did, because then I circle back and say in the beginning we literally sold photo frames and you know and what we figured out is that uh, we were retailers first and so what we figured out is that people needed to take the risk out of retail so they didn't really care what you sold they cared about the risk they took a retailer takes risk in every purchase they make if they don't sell the product their entire profit is their ability to get rid of bad decisions. And so we our product in the beginning wasn't that great, man. I, I gotta be honest with you, it's not something that I was really that proud of, but our business model was extraordinary. And being retailers, we said, look, people are shipping slow. They're, you know, they they don't, you know, take any of the risk. And so let's start a company and let's ship everything within 24 hours let's guarantee the sale of the product and you know and let's be the kind of a partner to a retailer that they need and guess what that's all that was necessary and so we literally had more business than we could handle on the philosophy of how we did business now at a certain point we had to actually get a really good product and so you know so i'm literally standing there in china with my photo frame and i'm looking at a box and i'm saying if you could put that photo frame on top of that box and make it a music box, I think it would be something. And I literally created a music box out of our photo frame. And next thing you know, the following year, we started selling a million music boxes a year. And we became the largest musical gift company in North America, selling our product, not just in North America, but on every continent in the world, all from that one idea of that crazy photo frame became a music box. And why was it so successful? Because it allowed people to buy a music box and turn it into anything they wanted. You give a music box to a mom that says, mom, you're the greatest, it's a great gift. But when mom takes that lid and puts a photo of her kids, it's an heirloom that the children will be fighting over 30 years from now. And that was real bad.
1: Okay, so (laughs) music boxes, if I'm remembering these, you open the lid and out comes like a ballerina kind of thing. Is, no, am I getting that, that right? Uh,
0: that, that, there are music boxes like that. And we ultimately got into there. But these are the heirloom, traditional wooden. You open it and it's a Sankyo mechanical music playing on a drum. And, you know, and so it's got this, uh, you know, all instrumental music and we would play songs like Wind Beneath My Wings and You Light Up My Life and, uh, you know, Amazing Grace and really traditional. And so you say to yourself, wait a minute, you know, can you really sell that many music boxes? Well, fast (laughs) forward and and, and I know we'll get into the mechanics of the sale, but the company who bought my company is I just had lunch with them the other day and they're still selling $8 million worth of music boxes a year. (laughs) Okay. And this is, you know, now I guess we started it. uh, So this is 15 years, you know, later. So sometimes the riches are in the niches. So, you know, if you've got a niche business, sometimes that can be more valuable than something that's really broad, because what happens is you can't go to a traditional store and find a music box right now. They just don't exist. But it doesn't mean there's not demand for music boxes. It means the demand shifted to online. And so that's where people find music boxes at right now is online so the man's so the, there but you just can't find them in retail
1: so in the beginning you sold so you had them made in china and then shipped over and then you sold them to retailers is that right
0: yeah okay. we sold them to retailers. Um, you know at the, at the beginning of my sale of the company, we online really hadn't taken place because uh, you know the the real precipice, what happened was is that uh, we were chosen uh, we applied for some awards and we got uh, outstanding you know uh, company awards in our local community. We ended up winning a Small Business of the Year in Indiana, and we competed on the national level, and we became the number two small business in America. Uh, in 2007, and that's what got us a lot of attention and why we decided that maybe we had something that we should sell. Now, remember, it wasn't because we had this incredible product. We We were chosen out of much larger companies because of our philosophy. And our philosophy was at Cottage Garden, we take the risk out of retail because retail is too risky already. And so if you bought our music boxes, we would guarantee the sale of them until they left your shelf. And we could do that because we would just trade out the face paper. If mom wasn't selling, we gave you a daughter face paper. If daughter wasn't selling, we gave you a friend face paper. So we could stand behind it, guarantee the sale. And so it was really our philosophy that built the company. And, and it's turned out, we ended up with a pretty cool product as well, and that's what really took us from that two to three million level up to the eight plus million uh, dollar level was the, you know the, the music box component.
1: And that's where you were in 2009 when you wanted to sell? Or where where were you at revenue-wise? Yeah, so so we
0: we received this award and we start getting a lot of attention. And I'm one of those people that believe that most people decide to sell their business when they've gone over the curve, meaning grow, 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 grow. Now it plateaus, oh, I want to sell my business. But buyers want to, you know, in my experience, I found that a buyer is interested in buying into the growth not after the growth has occurred, just based on some previous experience that I had in selling other businesses, uh, where I'd sold a business that had peaked over the curve, and I sold a business that was going into the curve, and, you know, I believe that if we were going to get maximum, you know, EBITDA return on this business, we needed to sell as it was growing, so therefore, we had to get the company, so it's like we got the awards in 2007, we then spent 2008 getting the company ready to be sold because it takes a little time to make sure you've got everything sure. where it needs to be. And then obviously we started soliciting buyers for the business and, and completed the transaction then. And so give me the numbers in 2009. In so $8 million on the top line. What are you putting yes. to the bottom line in that Yeah, in that putting to the bottom line a $1
1: million. Got it. And so what did you think it was worth? Like did you have
0: any sense of, of yeah, a multiple EBITDA? Yeah, we, of we did. I mean, we did the homework, we, we spent some money on this. We hired a consultant to really help us make sure we were doing it right. Um, retail and wholesale, basically, on the low end was two times EBITDA and on the high end was five times EBITDA. And so you know, we didn't feel that we were on the low end for sure and we also were realistic that we probably weren't going to get on uh, the highest end. And so we wanted to be on the higher end, obviously, of that. And so we, being a wholesaler, We were put into the same classification as a retailer because that's who we sold to. And that was the EBITDA range that businesses were going for. So we basically said, what do we need to do to position ourselves to be on the high end? Well, not surprisingly, the early people interested in the business were interested in the low end of the EBITDA range instead of the high end. And we knew that we had a growing company. And so, you know, how did we position to get the higher end? Because we ended up in the 4.5. So we didn't get the highest. But we got darn near the highest and I did something very unique and that was we were apart by almost a whole point of of what we needed to be. And I knew that the buyer was the right buyer, but I knew that we were pretty far apart. So what I did is I guaranteed the buyer that I would deliver the EBITDA results of the company for the first two years or... I would make up the difference out of my own earnout, and so what that meant was that um, they took some risk off the table so that if I was wrong and the company didn 't deliver the results that were currently being delivered, then you know they got some consideration back you know for that in the first two years. Now, the earnout was over five years, so as far as I was concerned, the risk was two years. Over a five-year period, but for them, they felt that if something was going to go wrong, if I misrepresented the business, it was going to happen early, not later. And they had more influence on the business later, so they would control that number a little bit more than I would. Versus in the beginning, I would control it. Now knowing that I was in a growing business, you know, that's when, you know, obviously, um, uh, you know, I'm I'm sitting here in a growing category. And, you know, and so I felt pretty confident, but something happened. Okay. You have to understand if you go back into the timing and that was, you know, shortly after the close of our deal, Lehman Brothers, you know, it was right in the time frame of the financial crisis meltdown. Oh, right. It was 2009. And so, yeah. So right in that time frame is when all of this is going down. And so it did make for a little bit of a challenge, but, but this is where our philosophy kicked in. So retailers, more than ever, did not want to take risk. So we actually benefited and grew during those really challenging times because retailers still had to have product, people were still buying gifts, but they wanted to take some risk off the table. So we really pounded our philosophy of taking the risk out of retail. And so therefore, we came through that time fairly well unscathed as to what could have been a pretty... Uh, rough go for me having negotiated the deal that I did, I could have been coughing up a good portion of my earnout back to the buyer. So, anytime you do that, I got the higher earnout, but I did put risk on the table that I could have had to give back through factors that weren't really in my control. Obviously, I couldn't have predicted the financial meltdown that took place, nobody could have predicted COVID 19 that just hit. True. And so there are always factors that come into play. So, you know, that's the difference between a cash deal and obviously an earnout deal. Okay, and so go ahead.
1: Let me, let me unpack it because uh, I'd, I'd love to unpack this because uh, what I didn't say to our listeners up front was that, that, that you sold this company and bought it back and then sold it again. And so we're going to do all three of those transactions. So, the first one, if people are listening and think, why aren't we talking about a business back in 2009? Uh, hold your guns because we're going to get into a transaction that's much more recent. But let's just spend a bit more time unpacking the 09 transaction, if we could. So, you're, and I, I'm curious to know the difference between guaranteeing EBITDA and an earnout. So, you, you, you said that you got them to a four and a half times multiple. What proportion of that was at risk in the earnout?
0: Yeah, so uh, half of it was cash. And so I got a cash transaction of 50% and then I had 50% um, was earnout. So So a large piece of this was at risk. And so, mm-hmm. and then, it, but now here's what I did in exchange for guaranteeing the, um, the, the, the EBITDA, okay. In exchange for guaranteeing the EBITDA in the first two years, I did negotiate not only a higher multiple, but I, I also put no cap on the upside which meant that i could exceed the earnout by an unlimited amount based on a percentage formula. and so, you know, so that's a good that's that's something that um that that worked for me in a growing business because if it's mm-hmm. growing then if it has the opportunity to keep growing, you know, then in my case i thought i could potentially exceed the second half of the earnout if the company continued to grow. so i built that into the equation as well.
1: Okay. So the guarantee, I just want to make sure I understand that the guarantee, so you guaranteed the first two years worth of, of EBITDA. What was at risk? Like if you hadn't hit those numbers, um, were, were they able to claw back the entire sale price or what proportion well, of that? Okay. So cash? Let's
0: just use, let's just use, you know, you already asked me bottom line. Let's just use a million dollars. Sure. So, so if I, if I did not, okay. If I did not achieve a million dollars, then let's say I did six hundred thousand, then they could take out of my earnout of year one four hundred thousand dollars and apply it to the bottom line of the company. And let's say catastrophe hit and and the company didn't make any money, then they could t- claw back into the cash amount that they gave. So. You know so in, in essence I wow. literally had uh, so you know I had not all of it at risk but if if something catastrophic happened and the company made no profit they literally could have clawed back a good you know 80% of, of what they put on the table which which gave them you know it lowered their risk appetite and so obviously you know one important thing to note is that they hired me to run the business for the next five years so that played into a factor of me being willing to make this commitment because I was the one running the business and so I knew I would have a lot of influence over the business at least for the period of time of my earnout and that mattered in negotiating a deal structure like this. If I was not uh, going to run the business this would have been a much higher risk to me.
1: What would have happened had the, had you not hit the profitability numbers and they had fired you as an employee of the company?
0: Yeah, um, they, they really, the only way they could fire me is if I committed a felony. Okay. And so, you know, so, <laughs> you I were mean, pretty I'm, locked in. I'm being very honest. Like, I, yeah. I would have had to have been dishonest. I would have had to commit a crime um, and okay. to, to be fired. And so, you know, so that would, have, that would have been difficult because I'm a pretty straight up guy. So, you know, so that was, that was part of the the, the negotiation. And this is where, this is why, you know, I didn't negotiate the deal myself. You know, I, I hired someone to, you know, I paid a fairly hefty legal bill in the transaction to make sure that I had things buttoned up and, and that they were done correctly. I, I hired someone that does this for a living and had, this wasn't their first rodeo and they made sure it was done right. And I'm so thankful that I did that. And and
1: I, I'm so glad we we have never covered this 300 episodes in. When you talk about hiring someone to negotiate that, I'm assuming you're talking about a lawyer negotiating yeah. your yeah. employment contract. Yep. You know, it occurs to me that there's two types of legal contracts that are critical in the sale of a company. One is the final share share purchase agreement, which is usually conducted by an M and A lawyer, someone who's steeped in corporate finance. And then there is the employment agreement and employment agreements are usually written by HR lawyers. It was Did you use the, the same the, lawyer to do both?
0: No, no, not at all. I mean, I so I had so I had my transactional element, so there's, you know, I had a consultant that used legal counsel for the actual financial transaction, but then that same consultant recommended a lawyer to do the employment agreement. And I have to tell you the employment agreement was more important in the life of this transaction than the sale agreement was. And so, you know, so there were more, more elements that were tested in the life of this in the employment agreement than were tested in the purchase agreement. The purchase agreement turned out to be pretty black and white, pretty straightforward but the employment agreement was the one that was referenced more often and gone back to and revisited on a more regular basis. And so I'm so, so, so thankful that I did the employment agreement you know, the way I did, which I could have just done a boilerplate employment agreement and sure. it could have been very problematic in my particular situation.
1: What were the biggest differences between a boilerplate employment agreement and the one that you
0: negotiated? Yeah, it was the same things that we're talking about. It was uh, it was the kind of things that they put in to make sure that I couldn't be fired, um, you know, for just because of a whim. Um, you know, it was the kinds of things that basically uh, gave me, like, it limited their ability to impact the uh, company's uh, decision-making with regards to EBITDA. And so, like, that was built into the employment agreement. Like, there was only so much that they could do to influence EBITDA. So, they couldn't just decide, "Hey, we're going to charge your, you know, this venture, you know, fifty thousand dollars a month in management fee, and then the EBITDA goes to zero. And so, you know, so it's like, uh, you know, so there was they they put in a lot of things that they had seen go wrong in the past uh, to make sure that I actually could run the business and that I you know had the ability to influence the 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 points that mattered most you know in the business with regards to hiring firing and cost control and so and it didn't mean that they couldn't and they ended up deciding to put a lot of burden on the company but it had to be factored out of ebitda consideration so they basically allowed them to do whatever they needed to do to the company to be in their benefit from a tax consequence but it could not affect my um, you know, role as the president of the company or ultimately my EBITDA calculation.
1: So smart. I'm so glad we covered this and you, and you shared it in such great detail. In those two years, again, admittedly, the biggest wild card that we've experienced, maybe an exception of COVID now, uh, you were in the throes of this great recession. 2009 was the nadir and, and it wasn't great in 210 either. Um, did you hit? Uh, the EBITDA goal? Or did, did you actually fall short and have to get back some of the year now?
0: Yeah. So uh, year one, I, I hit the EBITDA goal. And so it was no problem. Year two was where we felt more of the pain of, uh, of the financial meltdown, obviously. And so, so yeah, I had to contribute some back um, in the equation. And, and you know what? It was fair. I don't look back on that at all. I feel like it was a, I feel like the, the company that bought my company was a good company and good people and, and they negotiated a fair deal and it was a fair deal. And, you know, and, and, so consequently, um, yeah, I didn't have any problem, you know, with the fact that, uh, when it fell short in year two, I had to, you know, make, and, and in that particular case, you know, I didn't have to reach into my pocket. I just didn't receive as much of the earnout. And so, so consequently, it just was what it was and uh, and so anyway it and and by the way, you know, like I said, you know this is one of those situations where I feel like everybody you know it, they couldn 't predict the financial meltdown you know and so and i couldn 't predict the financial meltdown, so it would have been unfair for me to be the total beneficiaries of, you know, the global, you know, events that were taking place. So I feel like they did a good job negotiating. I did a good job negotiating. And, you know, and and we both came out as whole as you could in a situation like that.
1: You know, for folks watching on YouTube, we do this uh, on iTunes, but we also do it on YouTube. And I mean, I'm looking at you and you're a pretty young guy. I'm doing the math. I'm like, okay, seven businesses. (laughs) Five year earnout, that was a big proportion
0: of your professional life. Like th- that was a huge, like a huge it was uh, and it was a sweet spot of my professional life. So, but on the same token, you know, that I, I mentioned earlier, I made a conscious decision to sell a business that was growing. And so, so frankly speaking, you know, I wanted to run the business. So I, you know, sometimes people, you know, sell a business and they don't want to run it, they just want to be done with it. And so I wanted to run the business. I, I love the people that were there. I like the company that bought, you know, our company. I mean, I was, I was happy, you know, doing, you know, uh, what, what I was doing. And so, but I was at a really cool, and my kids were young, you know, and so to, to start something else, to do something else could, could have really up, uh, you know, upended, uh, you know, a lot of things going on in my life. And so, you know, so it was definitely the right decision for me at that stage. Um, I can tell you that's not the stage I'm in right now. You know, so that would, that would not be something that I would seek to do at this stage of my life. But at that stage of my life, it made a whole lot of sense to be able to keep my family where it was at, me doing what I was doing, doing it with a product that I believed in, and doing it for a company that I had a lot of respect for.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, you know, a lot of factors kind of uh, merging into that decision, obviously. What was that like, the five years? I mean, how was it to be an employee for such an entrepreneurial guy?
0: Yeah, it's it's a challenge. I mean, I had to check my ego at the door. I, I I mean, I would be I would not be transparent to say it was easy, you know, because as an entrepreneur, you're in control, and and suddenly I had a boss, and, and I had a real boss, and and he was uh you know he he's a he's a guy who you know had a, a business to look out for, and you know and so and he had to make good decisions for his business as well, and you know and so you know so from time to time you know we may have disagreed, and as an entrepreneur they you just, you get, you get to make the decisions. And in this case, you know, I I didn't get to make those decisions sometimes. And so that was challenging, but you know, I did respect uh, the company and I respected him. And I, I learned how to check my ego at the door and say, this isn't personal, this is business. And I made this decision. I negotiated this deal. It's a fair deal. And so I, I need to see this through. And I did. And if it means anything to the equation uh, to, the company and my situation, I actually re-upped and extended my time a little bit. So really? I went beyond I went beyond the five years and I did that for my family. And so that was at the point where I said, okay, my kids are at really critical ages. My kids are teenagers. They need their dad. And so, you know, and, and the company was um, you know, was abundant enough to see my value. Obviously, the earnout was long gone at that point. So it was more of a true employment. You know, and so, but I signed up for a couple more years, um, you know, to run that venture. And I carved out some time for myself to do some philanthropic things that I wanted to do. And so, it was, again, a win for me as a husband, as a father, and, you know, as a philanthropist to be able to do that.
1: The proverbial, have your cake and eat it too, so to speak. Yep. So, let's, let's get into... The circumstances around you buying it back. This blows my mind. Like, I'm trying to think of like, like you've sold your business, you've had the success, you go through a five year earnout,
0: like, you're finally done with it, and then a two year re up. What happened? Like, why did you buy it back? You know, it, it really, again, came down to the situation of, uh you know, the, the company, you know, was pivoting. They were going in a little different direction and they decided they weren't located here and they decided that their options. Well, in, in all fairness, I decided not to re-up. And so, you know, so I wasn't going to continue to run it. So if I'm not running it, you know, where does the company even need to stay here? You know, does it need to stay in this location? And, you know, and they had decided, no, it it, it didn't need to stay here. And so that meant the possibility of of some people that that I knew and loved losing their jobs. And so, you know, and and by the way, I did not disagree with their decision. You know, I, I think it was probably the right decision for them to do that. And so, again, it's one of those rare you know, situations where we just entered into a conversation and, you know, the the cost involved in moving a business of this size was was substantial. How big was it at the time, Tim? Like what um, what revenue? At the time, you know, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it, it's not far off. I mean, it's a little lower revenue than what it was. And, you know, but still a similar amount of employees, maybe 30 or 40 employees. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so not a small footprint. In fact, some of the new product had become larger. And so it was a little larger operation from, a, uh, you know, warehouse space, et cetera the The previous company had done a good job of automating and and putting some things in practice that that made it a little more complicated of a business than it was and so so there you there you had it and and they could easily absorb it inside of their world and so but it but not at a cost you know I mean but at a cost I mean, and so you know we entered into some conversations and and talked and when they looked at you know the cost to move it. And then you know, I looked at it and said, well, what if I could you know, hold on to it and uh, would, would I be interested in doing that? And, and here was the twist. Uh, the only reason I was interested in doing it is because some of the staff that had been with me for a long time stepped up and said, Hey, we want to be a part of, of this. And so so they actually, you know, brought capital to the table. And oh, really? and and yes, and we bought it collectively. Not every single person, but you know, it was one of those things where it felt really good to me to not be the only owner of this second go-around. And to have people that literally started two of the people, it was their first job they ever had was working for me. And so, and they had grown up to the point and, had started doing their own thing and had become successful. And so, you know, so it was a group of, of employees that went together that completed this second transaction. And, you know, and so I was obviously a big part of that, but it was, you know, it was collectively something that we did together as a group. And, and that felt really good to me because then I wasn't back as the, you know, as the, the solopreneur, you know, in this equation. And so I had, a, had an ownership you know, group that we, you know, that we did it. And so, and in the process, again, I really feel it was a fair transaction. I think it was a fair transaction for, you know, for the company selling and it was a fair transaction for buying. And so I don't think either party actually did better or worse than the other in the transaction. It was a fair deal. And I, I think, um, you know, for me, the, the biggest thing that I can look back on my own experience and say, I put a lot of energy into striking fair deals, and I had to learn that the hard way. Um, I had a couple transactions where I I got the better end of the deal, and and after time it it backfired. And so you know, so it uh, it's one of those things where you know I personally put a lot of energy into making sure the deal is fair for both sides, because then the opportunity for success long term you know is there and i feel like it was a fair deal for them fair deal for us and you know we were able to complete the transaction it wasn't the intention, you know. I mean, you you kind of shared the 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 end of the story. It wasn't the tr- the intention to turn around and sell it again uh, right away, you know. But it turned out that uh, there was another business that we were involved in that uh, another a buyer was interested in, and the two businesses had become intertwined. One was an e-commerce business, and one was a manufacturing business, and and so it was that entanglement that ended up providing the opportunity for. Uh, a second uh, transaction.
1: Okay I want to get into that but before we do let's talk about purchasing this business. So on the front end you'd sold it for four and a half-ish half of which was at cash half was on an earnout, which seemed fair uh, to both parties. How did you structure the purchase?
0: Yeah so the purchase was a little different obviously cash you know there's got to be some cash to the table and uh, you know and there's got to be um, uh but in this particular case, you know, uh, there, there was an aggressive, um, you know, uh, payback structure. And so it was, uh, what do you call it? Uh, um, owner, uh, or seller financed, you know, was, was <laughs> part of the, you know, equation. So it was, you know, it was kind of an intricate scenario cash, um, you know, some seller financing and, uh, you know, and some, you know, just kind of consideration. And so it was, uh, it was one of those deals. It was not based on, there was not a EBITDA, you know, consideration. It was more of a, you know, just an agreed upon, you know, placing a value on what it would be to move the company, placing a value on what the assets in the company, placing some goodwill. I mean, just, it was one of those situations where it was, uh, you know, let's, let's find the right number. Let's find the number that, uh, you know, that, that feels fair to everybody. And, you know, and, and from that perspective, you know, I think, um, uh, I think that was really the only way to structure the second time around was to, you know, because there were so many other factors involved. You know, there had to be a value placed on what it would be to, you know, relocate the business. And so, you know, versus the first time, it was a, a transaction based on, you know, on, on health of the company.
1: Yeah, and, and so they're looking at an opportunity cost to, uh, you know, on one hand, you know, moving it is gonna have all those expenses. And I'm interested to know when you bought it, did you buy the shares or the assets?
0: Yeah. So, uh, assets,
1: the assets. Okay. So the, the, the liabilities, the the severance liabilities of you know employees and so forth did not transfer across.
0: No, did not. But, uh, but on the same token, all of the staff was kept, you know? Right. So it right. was, you know, it was not a, that was, that was not, there wasn't a lot of, uh, I don't think there was a lot of liability i mean we we obviously did you know w- would have um avoided some of that uh you know should something have come up, but as it turned out it just it just was the better way to do the transaction this time around
1: and did the employees did they get recognized for their tenure in the old company, in the new company, if you know what I'm saying? Like, did they have to sign employment agreements that basically washed out any tenure they had?
0: Yeah, or- I mean, as an entrepreneur, I mean, you know this, uh, you know, uh, employment agreements are fairly fluid. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's not a big company. And so there's not massive retirements and, you know, and all of those kinds of things. And so I think everybody was just thrilled to have their jobs you know i think they were thrilled to be doing what they were doing and what they loved and for a company they loved and you know i mean it. uh you know i'm not trying to paint an overly rosy picture there's ups and downs and everything but you know but it was uh again when you choose the right buyer and you choose you know you you get some of that stuff right a lot of things can work and i you know again i give a whole lot of credit to you know the company that bought it and i give them a lot of credit you know for the decision they made to sell it i mean i I think it was the right decision to buy it. I think it was the right decision to sell it. And, you know, it was the right decision for me to sell initially. And it was the right decision for me to to buy it back. And so, you know, I guess maybe it's rare that you can have that kind of clarity looking back. But, um, but I really do have that kind of clarity. And would I have done a few things different? Of course I would have. You Likewise. know, but uh, well... I mean, looking back, I probably would have, um, you know, I would have structured things maybe a little different in how I began things in the beginning. I, I would have made a few tweaks to the employment agreement. You know, I, I can't really get into the specifics because sure. you know, I am bound by some um, legalities around the details of the transaction. You know, that's why we're talking round numbers uh, and uh, we're not it's talking specific yeah. And so, because I certainly wouldn't want to violate a. A confidentiality and so but there, no. there are always things that are in those kinds of agreements that you could go back and change but that's just life experience and so I'll tell you what I wouldn't change I wouldn't change who I sold it to and you know I wouldn't change that experience. I'm I'm still in contact with them. Um, the main guy who negotiated the deal I'm I'm I mean he bought my book uh that that I just came out with uh oh, you know and, and he bought it read it and then bought it for all of his kids. You know I mean this is oh, that's this great is how you know, you, you want that in life. You want, you want to be, you know, a decade away from a transaction like this and still feel like you can have lunch with, um, you know, with the people and that they're, they're following you and you're following them.
1: So, and I appreciate that you may not be able to answer this with the specificity that I crave, but, but that's okay. <laughs> so when you bought it back that second time around in 2016, I'm assuming you bought it at a discount to what you what you sold it for just given the opportunity costs they would incur with moving the business. So it would give you a bit of leverage. Can you talk round numbers percentage basis? Like are we talking a 50% discount, a 10% discount, like any sense of what yeah, I mean, a-
0: In the spirit of again, not wanting to get in any trouble. Yes. Uh, I can just say it was at a discount. And yeah. so, and, and you, you just, just from the story, from the timeframes, from where we were at in the world, you know, you can probably appreciate that, you know, that there was. But again, you know, here's the beauty is that, remember, I guaranteed profitability, you know, so you can also figure out that I delivered some considerable bottom line, you know, numbers for, you know, for everybody, you know, myself and the purchaser. And so, you know, so from that standpoint, you know, when you look and do the math and over time, you know, all of a sudden it's, you know, you can see that, you know, this was this was not a situation where the business was, uh, you know, was was failing. You know, and where the business didn't have upward potential. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been interested in in being a part of it. You know, again, that my only decision not to continue with the company actually had to do with just wanting to do something else in my life. And so, yeah, it, it's, it it it's certainly true. wasn't because I didn't have respect for the the company that i was working for and it wasn't because i didn't like the company itself i just found myself at a place in life where i wanted to try some new things and do some new things and and that was the precipice for me wanting to you know to move on and then you know and what it did is is in in getting it back and in doing it with a, a group of other people you know i was able to carve myself out of the day-to-day management of the company and so it was kind of the best of both worlds I'm still involved in a company I love, you know, but I'm I'm also freed up to do some other things, and so that was the real attractive point to me that I could, without you know, breaking any employment agreements, I could start to do some other things.
1: That's it makes so much sense, and I think a lot of people listening to this would be like, yeah, that's exactly what I crave. I've been doing this for ten years, twenty years, thirty years, I just crave the ability to do something else. So let's get back into. So you're 2016, you buy it back with some of your team putting in some of the the equity as well um was there a straw that broke the camel's back in terms of wanting to sell it a second time like what you mentioned there was a uh, an interconnection between you guys and an e-commerce company maybe can you unpack that a little bit and what what exactly was was, uh,
0: you know i had i had gotten involved with uh you know the two two of the people that uh, you know joined me and you know in buying this company back had started an e-commerce company and uh, and I you know I had become part of that company you know as as well in the whole process of, you know, it, they gave me an opportunity to get involved in that because I had given them an opportunity to, you know, get started in their career. And so I took that opportunity and, you know, and so, you know, so that's kind of what brought us all together was me getting involved with their company and them, you know, and us coming together with this. And so what happened was, you know, obviously the e-commerce company became the largest customer of the wholesale company. What, what did so, the
1: e-commerce company do? It was selling totally stuff online, online.
0: It's selling product on Amazon selling product on Amazon. And so obviously now owning, you know, the, owning the original company. And so now instead of just having a few products online, you're literally listing the entire company online. And so you can imagine the results of that kind of focus. And so next thing, you know, the company, you know, the uh, becomes the biggest customer of the wholesale company is the retail company. Cause and you're so, buying
1: the music boxes. Yep from you guys and then reselling them effectively on Amazon. That's That's the business model. Okay. And was that not in some way, like did they, did your former, the the two guys that started this e-commerce company, did they run that by you in advance and say like, how do you feel about us going to do this?
0: Oh, I I told them, you know, I'm going to be very transparent. This is something I can share. I hired them both while they were still in college. I recognized their talent. And I said, Hey, look, if you guys will give me five years and do everything I ask you to do, I will mentor you. I will coach you. And then you have my full blessing to go out and do whatever you want to do. I didn't realize they would do something together. You know hmm. I mean? That was, they didn't even know each other when I hired them, you know? So I was true to my word. They gave me, some great years of their time and effort. And so when it was time for them to go do their own thing, they had my full blessing. I mean, I I was, I, I was highly encouraging them to do whatever passion that they, you know, saw fit. And they were young and saw an opportunity in e-commerce and, and even became a customer of the, you know, of the company I was running and a big customer but, of the company I was running.
1: But I guess another, like just strategically, you could have taken the decision in the company that, in addition to selling to retailers, we are now going to set up an e-commerce division and sell to Amazon.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, you know, it was early did. days. It was early days. So I don't think we saw that as an option. And so, but we certainly could have. And we were selling to a lot of, of uh, e-commerce retailers. So they weren't the only one. They were just one of the e-commerce retailers we were selling to. So, you know, so that was, you know, we, we saw our business more as selling to other people who were selling online not selling online ourselves, So it didn't really, it didn't really, uh, you know, raise a, and like now it's a little different. People are like, hey, we, it's okay for a brand. At that particular time, it was really frowned on for a brand to sell their own product online. Like you were, mm. you were kind of cheating on your, you know, your retail customers if you did yeah. that. Channel now conflict. <laughs> it, now it's not, now it's not the case, but you have to understand the timeframe of when e-commerce was just starting that was not an okay practice at that particular time. That was, that was frowned on. So it made perfect sense. It did not seem, I mean, it, it was a positive thing. They were a customer, you know, so it was, it was cool. I mean, they, and they started selling a lot of them. And so they became an important customer. And And to be clear, are you
1: a partner in the e-commerce business? Like, are you a shareholder in the e-commerce business?
0: So at that particular time, no, at that particular time, I'm not, I'm just, uh, you know, I, I'm just an encourager. I'm just a, I'm a mentor. That's that's frankly what I was. And I, I made the commitment. Like I had to, uh, my integrity was such that I said, give me five years and I'll, you know, I'll support you in whatever you're doing. And so I was just a mentor at that point. I was not, you know, I didn't, I didn't back the company or, or I wasn't an investor. I wasn't a shareholder.
1: Got it. And so again, I, I'm, I'm trying to get some clarity on the, Reason to sell so you've got the e-commerce company that's now become a thing and it's it's now a customer Which is great. You've got the retail business continuing Uh, You've only just purchased it back two years
0: prior. So why sell? Okay, so here's the deal Um, I basically brought to the new venture um, when I did become a shareholder um, after the transaction and I basically explained my philosophy on selling a business and that you 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 sell a business when it's growing, not when it's peaked and going on the other side. And so, you know, so there there started to be a, a regular ownership meeting around, hey, you know, what would it look like if we did a similar thing to what Mark did and you know collectively. And so, you know, this time around was really cool because I actually got to be The consultant that I had hired to do the first Mm. transaction for me, I played that role in this transaction because I was not the majority shareholder of the e-commerce business. And so consequently, you know, I helped to facilitate that entire transaction on behalf of the entire ownership group um, as the consultant that really led it. And I found the buyer and I was able to use all of my previous wisdom to make sure that we set everything up the right way and did everything the right way. And, and, you know, you asked me, what would I do differently? Well, I got the chance to do it differently, you know, in, you know, in how, you know, things were set up in the transaction. But because by this point, the manufacturing company had become so important to the e company, you couldn't really unwind them. You couldn't really, you know, untangle them. And so it kind of became a package, you know, deal uh, if you will, in the transaction because to so unwind sold- them would have been uh difficult so i sold it it, we we sold all of it in that next uh time frame
1: interesting so you kind of jammed them together and said okay this is the thing and then so so that opens a whole pandora's box so how did you value the e-commerce company uh in order to because did you actually create an entity with both uh both companies, the manufacturing company, the e-commerce company before, and then you sold that new entity? Yeah. Okay.
0: So Legally, is was, that how you it? The, the, the entities were separate, and so they okay. were separate. And so, you know, so the uh, the e-commerce company was sold in a very similar fashion to what I sold Cottage Garden as a multiple of EBITDA. Um, and so, and I do apologize, I cannot disclose that information, but it, okay. was, uh, uh, it was a larger company than uh, where I was at. And the multiple, you know, obviously was it's a it's it's a more sexy category than, uh, you know, than where things were at, you know, uh, just a few years ago. So e commerce is is a pretty cool category to be in the the original company, you know, cottage garden was it was intact still as an entity. So it was its own entity. And so they, they bought two entities. And, uh, and so it was, it was a really a package deal, but they were structured differently because, and basically I, this is what I can tell you is that the e-commerce was based on an earnout, and the other one was based on a, you know, negotiated amount. And so, and even though there was creative transacting and, and financing and how everything was done and payments and all of that, you know, it was separated it you know and, and it was easy to separate because it was similarly to how the company was bought back and so you know so it was easy to you know kind of hold and and transfer some of that um value and, and the value of the asset and and for it to transact in a you know in a similar fashion
1: did that create tension among the shareholders because you got the e-commerce guys running the sexy business getting paid handsomely, big multiple, and then you've got the maybe traditional business where these guys put their own hard-earned money down on the table and, and maybe not, aren't getting the same valuation. I mean, did that create a bit of
0: tension, a bit of no, a I, jealousy? I, I want to give, give a lot of credit to the guys that uh, started the e-commerce company. And they came in and they became partners um, in buying the company back. And they gave the other people that were involved in buying it back a chance to buy into the e-commerce company. So in the end, everybody was shareholders of everything now at much different levels. So trust me at much different levels, but everybody was motivated for the entire transaction. Again, it comes back to fair deals. Like that was so extraordinarily smart on their part to say, Hey, look, we're coming in in a major way to do this transaction, but you know we could see some future conflict of the haves and have-nots, et cetera. So we're going to give an opportunity for you to buy into this venture, and so that everybody is kind of it has an ownership of of different proportions in both ventures. So there wasn't any um, you know negative uh, repercussions in this transaction because everybody was benefiting on both sides.
1: The the Cottage Garden guys were they paying cash for the e-commerce share, company shares or w- w- like was it actual money out of their pocket?
0: Yeah, I mean it was. Uh, yeah, I would say that's a fair way to say it. I mean it was it it was paid it was cash out of the pocket. Um, you know, I would say that a lot of that cash was coming from the venture that they had. I mean it mm-hmm. was. Uh, but but as far as I'm concerned, as an entrepreneur, cash out of your company is cash out of your pocket you know, Mm -hmm. you could use it for other things. And so, you know, so thankfully the business was doing well. And so the business was able to finance, you know, their, their portion, you know, to, to some extent, but yeah, they came to the table with cash, um, and, and had to come to the table with more and, and, and likewise, you know, myself. And so, and I, and, and I had to come to the table with cash to buy into their venture, you know, Mm -hmm. and so, you know, and, and rightfully so, you know, that was the right thing to do. And so, um, you know, so it, there was there was a lot of cash taking place back and forth um, to make this all work. But it was always fair, you know, in consideration of the value that things were being valued. And the goal was always for the future. It was always like, let's do something fair now so that in the future we can all win together. And so, you know, that's, that's important.
1: So at the valuation that you are able to buy into the e-commerce company. I appreciate you can't share the actual final multiple, but we're, what was the return on that investment? So if you if you bought a share for a dollar, like when you actually sold the e-commerce company, was it was that share worth two dollars, five dollars, fifty cents? Yeah, like- I
0: mean, uh, I would say it's fair to say this is what's cool. It's fair to say that in a short amount of time, you know, there was a, a double um, transaction that was on the table. But here's the cool part. Using the wisdom that I had in the past, I again schedule, you know, put together a very similar, you know, kind of, of deal where there was some guaranteed um, delivery of results in the early side of it, but in exchange for no cap on the back side of it. And so, so the opportunity during the life of this transaction, which is not complete, you know, it's it's still in the middle, you know, it looks very much like. Um, you know, like they're the, the, the agreed upon multiple will increase in a, in a very healthy way for everybody because the company continues to be really healthy and profitable and doing well. And that's that's the beauty of a transaction is that I feel like the person, you know, when you structure a deal like that, people need to understand is that you say, well, man, you're getting this really great deal. No, the only way that you get a great deal is if the company is doing so well that the purchase, the person purchasing it is getting a windfall return above the valuation that they marked whenever they you know, started the whole purchase. So what I mean by that is, is that if you purchase something for a dollar, you know, and so you say, hey, um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna value this thing you know, at a dollar is what I bought it at, and, and I hope to make enough money to get that dollar back. And then all of a sudden the company's doing so well that you've made that money back and you actually have $2 that you've gotten back and and now the the person selling it benefits on that extra dollar and sure. so you know so they helped you get your money back and they helped you to accelerate you know the return on investment and you get a portion of that return on investment in the upside um, you know ebitda calculation and so you know so that's that's a case where You know, obviously that wasn't the case on my first time around just due to economics and and overall where things are at. I I still feel that it was a very fair transaction for both sides and I think everybody came out fine, you know, in the end. But this is a situation that's not done, so anything can change, you know, but it does look like, uh, you know, it's going to be a win for both sides with higher upside than what people, you know, valued the company at.
1: What's the difference in... In your emotional uh, response to selling a group of, like a a business where there were a group of you as shareholders, versus the first time through where it was only you benefiting economically, I, I I'm not answering that. I'm I'm not asking that question very well. But let me see if I can restate it. The The first time you sold, you were the one who economically benefited from the sale of this company you created for the most part. Now, the second time around, you are benefiting along with some of the other shareholders. Um, As you reflect back on that, do you, you you know, what are your uh, sort of feelings
0: about that? I mean, I'm in a different place in life. I, I think it was awesome to do something collectively. You know, it was, it was great to build something of value that somebody else wanted to, you know, to, to pay for uh, individually. But, you know, but at a certain point, I don't think we were put on this earth to be alone. And, you know, I I enjoy the entrepreneurial journey this, you know, this time around at this stage of my life with other people. And so, and it was fun to lead other people through their first transaction. So everybody, everybody in this, uh, you know, this second round, except for myself, was in their first transaction. And so, you know, go, go ahead.
1: No, I just, take me into that room. The first time that the idea of selling came up in 2017, it would have been where you were a young management team. You're, you 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 repurchased the business a year prior. So for a lot of people, thinking it would be way too early to sell, but you raised the specter of well, why don't we sell when we're growing? Um, and you said you played the role of consultant to help them sort of think about that. What advice did, or what kind of consulting did you give them in order to get the business ready to sell?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I walked them through the the psychology of where most people sell a. You know, most people sell a business when it's, you know, past its point of, you know, where it's plateauing or it's peaking. And so, and I walked them through that logic. And I also walked them through the logic of saying the best time to sell a business is when you're not ready to leave it. And so, you know, and, and, and they looked forward and said, Hey, when would I be interested in leaving it? And if you can say five years from now, I want to be doing something else, then you better be selling the business now you know, instead of five years from now. And so, you know, and so they understood and respected that psychology of the emotional piece of it. And so, you know, so they could wait until they're ready to sell it and probably be past the point of staying with it. And, and in this case, they were a lot like me. They, they, they sold a business that they were eager to continue running. And, and are still running it today, and, and are doing a phenomenal job of running the business, and you know, and it and worked out good for me, because I didn't have to stay with the business this time for five years, I could extract myself after a reasonable amount of time, but I, I walked them through the emotional roller coaster that I went through, and, and, and what worked, and what didn't for me, and they, they learned from my experience, and, uh, and I was able to be really raw and real about it, and, and I think you know, improve on, you know, the things that I did right or, you know, the things that I should have done differently.
1: But there are people listening to this and they're saying, Mark, I'm not going to do an earn out. There's no way. I, you know, like I'm going to sell, like when I'm ready to sell, I want cash and yep. I want to leave. I, yep. I don't. I know this earn out and vendor take back BS and half up front and half late. I want a hundred percent of my money up front.
0: So, all I can say is this, just like we had to place a consideration on you know the company moving the company and, and place a value on that, you must place a value on you walking away. You know, if you don't, you won't sell your business for, you know, in my experience, I wouldn't have sold the business for what I sold it for you know, if it was an all-cash transaction. I think I could have got the business sold, but it would have been at a discount to what um, I got it sold for, because there is value on, you know, the owner staying with the, the company. And it's, I've, I've had cash transactions and they've been clean but at a significant discount to, you know, to what uh, maybe I, I would have got if I would have stayed with it. And so, you know, but look, if, if, you know, in my experience, I'm in a different place in life now, I would be more interested in a cash transaction at this stage of my life than an earnout. but I'm just at a different season in life. So it really, for me, it's the season that I'm in that will dictate whether I do a cash transaction or an earnout transaction, and it's who I'm doing it with. You know, I was very fortunate to have partners involved that wanted to stay with the business. And so it made it very easy to, you know, to do the transaction that we did. But hey, I get it. I hear people all the time say that. People come to me and they ask for advice. I hear it all the time. Them say, hey, look, I want a cash transaction. I'm like, great. It can be done, you just need to place a value on that cash transaction and if you do and you place a real value, then you can likely negotiate a very fair transaction. And I will reiterate this you know, to anyone and everyone always, put more time in making sure the deal is fair than making sure you get the good deal. It, you know, that is, that is the greatest lesson that I've learned in seven transactions is the deals that I got the best deal are the deals that worked out poorly. And the deals that I got the worst deal are the deals I'm the most sour about. But the deals that I put great effort and energy to making sure they were fair for me and fair for the purchaser, those are the deals that worked out and still worked out. And those are the deals that I can still have lunch with the people and I look forward to seeing them the next time I see them. So, it, you know, if there's a one piece of, you know, just me that I've learned through this whole process is that there is no amount of energy or effort that is um, you know that that you can put into making sure it's a fair deal that you would look back and say that was not time well spent and it's not easy to do because as entrepreneurs we're wired to get the best deal if i get the best deal on a car tomorrow i'm telling all my friends about this great deal i got but great deals are not scalable. Generous deals are not scalable. The only scalable deal in your life is a fair deal where both parties win. And so that is the transaction that I look for, you know, in uh, an exit.
1: And so is this something, the difference between a, a fair deal and a good deal? By the way, I love that idea. Uh, is this something on which you and Kevin Harrington, your co-author, disagree? Because I've watched Shark Tank and I, you know, like I've watched the, the beat up these young entrepreneurs are just getting completely pummeled and driving them about data evaluation and Mr. Wonderful gets up there and says, you're terrible. Like I've watched the show. I think it's great. Kevin Harrington, your co-author is on it. I mean, it has been on, I should say, Um like the whole purpose of the show is to drive down the valuation yeah. and get a, a get
0: a good deal, not a fair deal. That's, so on this point, you must a, disagree. And that's a shark deal, but but I gotta tell you, Kevin doesn't disagree. Because remember, okay. Kevin was only on the first few seasons. And one of the reasons that he left the show is because he wanted to help more entrepreneurs. You know, and so you know, you can only help one at a time, you know, in that environment. If you do a deal with somebody, most of the people coming on the shark tank, they don't need the money, they need the mentorship. If you want to know the mm-hmm. truth. They need the mentorship. They need the Rolodex. And so, you know, Kevin was able to help a whole lot more people not on the show than he was on the show. And he helped a lot of people on the show and he did a lot of deals. And he looks back on it as an awesome experience, but he's able to help a lot more entrepreneurs this way. And I'm going to tell you something, this whole concept of a fair deal I see him live it out over and over. I mean, he's taken 20 businesses to over $100 million. And the only difference between him and other entrepreneurs on scale is that he negotiates fair deals. We talk about it in the book. It's a big section of the book is, is fair deals and, and how you negotiate fair deals. And so one of the reasons he is who he is is because he learned how to negotiate and puts incredible energy into negotiating fair deals. and so yes you would think he would disagree but the reality is is that that's really how he's wired and it was a little counterintuitive to what you see on the show and it's one of the reasons why he loved his experience, but he moved on so that he could help even more entrepreneurs and mentor more entrepreneurs than he was able to in that environment. That's so cool.
1: Hold up the book again. Show me the title. I, I, uh, it's Mentor to Millions. Mentor to
0: Millions. And by the way, millions is not millions of dollars. It's millions of people impacted. If you're oh, cool. listening and you have a product, purpose, or passion that the world needs, the fastest way to get that to the world is mentorship. If you have the right mentor, if you become that mentor's best student, and then you turn around and you mentor other people, you are well on your way to mentoring and impacting millions of people.
1: Tell me about the writing process because um, I've always wondered, but I'm genuinely curious because I've seen books where it's like uh, Andre Agassi and big letters on the cover and then like the little letters like, you know, and Sam Smith or whatever. And Sam's the one who did all the writing and Andre puts his name on it. Other times it's like two luminaries come together, two big things idea people come together and write a book. My sense is it's more the latter in this case than the former. But I've always wondered, like, how do you get a book written with two big personalities who are kind of like, you know, like, like I could just see, like, I could, I could never imagine writing a book because with someone else, because I'd be like, no, no, I want to write. No, you write it. No, I, like, it would be, it would blow up in about five seconds. What was the writing process for you and Kevin like? Yeah, and did you I write mean, a chapter and he responded? We're, or what
0: was it like? we're great partners and we're friends. And so we went into this book with honest expectations. He's probably the busiest guy I've ever met in my life. Hmm. So Kevin Harrington is not going to sit down and pen out a book. But what he is great at is, is telling stories and telling life's lessons. So we literally spent days just extracting out of him all of these amazing lessons that I learned through my time with him and that he's learned in his life. And then I was able to sit down and put the meat on those bones, if you will, of the context around where were we when he was telling the story? What was happening? This is not a how-to book. This is a a story of an entrepreneur, an everyday relatable entrepreneur, me, and his mentor and learning from that mentor. And I learned stories flying on airplanes with him and at events Mm -hmm. with him and at his house with him. And I learned stories and, and I learned lessons with my kids with him and watching him with his boys, and so, you know, so this is a, it's such an easy read, because it's storytelling at its best. You pick it up, you think you're going to listen, or read a chapter, and next thing you know, you've read seven chapters, because every chapter builds on the other chapter, because it's all stories, and, you know, stories are the oldest, you know, way of communicating. I mean, this goes back to biblical times, where all, they're all pulled in stories. Aristotle was the original storyteller. I mean, The greatest movement in the world is a story. You know, I mean, a good story is unstoppable and it will last for centuries, if not generations. And so we use stories in this book to reinforce our points. We, We talk about business. And we teach a lot about business, but we also talk about relationships. We talk about family. And, you know, I, I I deliver this bomb that the most valuable business you'll ever own, operate, or even be a part of is the business you go home to, not the hmm. one you go to every day. That your family is your most valuable business. Now, don't get any, you know, big ideas on this podcast. Your family is not for sale. Okay? I was just going to say. <laughs> so. You know, so the there's, you, you can't quite put an EBITDA, you know, on your family, but you can talk about bottom line, you can talk about reputation, you can talk about marketing. My family had a logo, we had a mission statement. I mean, we had shares. My youngest child has the same shares that I do in our family business. And so, you know, I legally incorporated my company. So. If you're listening out there and you're good at business, you can be that good at home. I just needed the worlds to make sense to each other. And so I made my family my most valuable business. And and it made sense to me. And ultimately, it made sense to my family. And I unpack a lot of that in the book. I take a lot of the lessons Kevin taught me and I show how I applied them at home to my most valuable business.
1: I love it. It's called Mentor to Millions. As we speak, it's both a USA Today and a Wall Street Journal bestseller. Congratulations. Thank you so much for sharing the time with us today.
0: Hey, thanks for having me. I I really appreciate your time. A great interview. And thanks for unpacking and helping me relive, you know, a a period, a decade plus uh, of my life. And I, I hope everybody got some value out of it. Oh, I'm sure they did. Thanks, Mark.